Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diva Behavior. We have a wild episode today. We're talking about Demi Moore. This lady's life story has everything. It's got fame, fortune, rags to riches, Bruce Willis, Ashton Kutcher, motherhood, pay gap stuff, naked pregnant magazine covers. Really, Demi Moore is a treasure, and we all need to appreciate her more, I think is what I learned most from this episode. We've read her new memoir, Inside Out, which is awesome. It's actually really well written for a celebrity memoir. I highly recommend reading it. Follow at Diva Behavior Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Follow Sandy on Instagram at Sandy Ritchie and check out her new podcast. It's called The Ginger Pop and you can follow that on Instagram as well. Okay, enjoy. Some people think Diva's a bitch. I never said that. Diva behavior. Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Of course, I don't trust you. Diva behavior, the podcast. Um, Ashton Kutcher, I feel like would be no one without the women that he's dated. Oh, 100%. Like, I didn't me, know about him in January Jones. Oh, I know. I knew about that just because there are rumors that he's January Jones's baby daddy, which I don't think is true. But yeah, they dated, they like dated right when they both first moved to LA, right? Mm-hmm. That's that what she little, said in her book. Yeah, that little tidbit, and I'm going to find it because I want to read it. Okay, so in the book, Demi's talking to Ashton, or, yeah, they were engaged. Like, Ashton and January Jones were engaged. And so Demi writes in the book, they were both just starting out at the time, modeling, taking small parts. As a 23-year-old, January had a tiny role in the movie Bandits, which Bruce Willis starred in when he was 46. Ashton was convinced they'd had a fling on set. Years later, I happened to sit next to January at an event, and I mentioned this. Are you serious? She said, laughing. I told him a hundred times I didn't want to fuck that old man. (laughs) And she's talking about Bruce Willis. Amazing. for Speaking of comments by celebs like whores, January Jones has some zingers sometimes. I love her. She is like the, the one really good comments by celebs like stalwart I would say because she's so sarcastic and Mm -hmm. she you can tell I feel like January Jones got that Mad Men money and she's fine with where she's at in Hollywood right now she's totally cool with like her station in life so she literally just sits around and gossips and spills the tea about everyone and it's incredible I got nervous for her because I, I follow her on Instagram um and I'm I'm not embarrassed to say this. One time I saw her smoking CBD cigarettes, so I ordered the CBD cigarettes, and they yeah. were great. Thank you, January. Really calmed me down. But <laughs> I was so relieved when she got a role on the show The Politician, not because I'm going to watch it, but just because I was like, okay, January's working. On to the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> I feel because... After hearing so many actresses say time and time again, the biggest actress, Demi Moore, 
Cameron Diaz, whoever it is, when they describe acting, they always say they feel like this job could be their last each and every time. Mm-hmm. No one in Hollywood feels that they have a place there. No one feels like they're going to last. And ev- just that feeling must be excruciating, you know? Yeah. And that's why the desperate attention-seeking behavior sets in because they just want to stay in the zeitgeist. Right. And they have all these like terrible men in power telling them over and over again, like you ain't shit. And the minute that you turn like 31, you're dead to us, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it must drive you crazy. I, I was really, okay. Should we start with her childhood or should we, I, I want to, before so. let's oh. rewind to her childhood. But first I also just want to say for the listeners sakes, like strap in because her not only is her childhood insane, but also she has been such a pioneer in so many ways that no one talks about, mm-hmm. which we will get to. But like with the body image stuff and everything, like she's been speaking really eloquently and intelligently about that stuff for so long. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I'm so, I feel like I have to take a Xanax to talk about this because it was, first of all, uh, I recommend this book. I highly recommend this book to anyone, whether you know who she is or not. It's really incredible. I like I as I mentioned, I did the audio book and her voice is so distinct and mellifluous and just getting it from that rasp. It was just oh, it was amazing. So, yes, very excited. Childhood first. Oh, yeah. She's got one of the great voices in like Hollywood history for sure. Absolutely. So. Okay, so the book starts with this moment where Demi has a seizure at a party with her daughter there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She, she did some nitrous, yes. which she says very casually. Like, I I don't know if you're going to nitrous parties in London. I have never – I've been to some parties, and I've never had someone offer me nitrous, but apparently in some circles it's very common. One and then thing, she took – Well, in the UK, people are more into – uh, they call it balloons, and I think that's what it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it is so gross and weird to me. I'm just like, really, you're doing whippets like I used to do when I was like 12 working in a smoothie shop in Bayhead. <laughs> like, me and my friends would do whippets with all the whipped cream, and then our boss would come in and watch us make a smoothie and see it just ooze out because there was no like gas left in it, and she'd be like, you assholes. See, I'm, I'm very into party activities that destroy your brain, but slower. Yeah, slower. Yeah. Nitrous to me seems like a, a quick, quick one. It's overkill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. It's like so crazy. I don't like that. I don't I think it's so weird and it's so immature. Um, But I was I will say adults in the United Kingdom and Ireland are doing it. Mm-hmm. And apparently in L.A. too. Yeah. And she smoked this synthetic pot. OK, why the synthetic pot? That I do oh. not get. It's Pop's great. Yeah. It's like having synthetic chocolate. Why would you do that? Right. It's it's all weird. Like, and then she's she's like, oh, I had a seizure, like, whatever. She sort of plays it off a little bit. Mm-hmm. And her daughter rumor was there. And then she said later on in the book, she says that they wanted her to go to rehab. And she was like, Why should I go to rehab? All I did was a whip it. And it's like, girl, you're like 50. Like, yeah. You can't be doing whippets with your with your daughter. There's in this book the it's like a ping pong game of who you believe and feel bad for. 
Yes. Because there are times when she is definitely the victim. And then there are times where she's portraying herself as a victim and your higher voice is like, wait a second. Right. Like this sounds fishy. And why would this person just abandon you, you know, disrespect you? So, and we'll go through that. Yeah. As a child though, I would definitely say V is for victim. Yes. Her childhood is out of control. Insane. I don't even know where to start. What were. Let's start with her birth. Yeah. Her mother, like she was, her mother was giving birth to her. And right before Demi came out, her mother was knocked unconscious, which she saw as a very, you know, tough way for a mother-daughter duo to be introduced to each other. Just this little baby that doesn't have a mother to hold them. Right. And her mom was what, 19, right? Yeah. 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. So, so the, young. Her, yeah. So she's, she maintains that she sort of had a a shaky bond, if any bond at all, with her mother. Mm-hmm. And then, like, as she goes through her life, you really see her mom acting like she's just her friend instead of really, like, a parent. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So then they moved every six months, basically, for her entire childhood because her parents were these, like, scammers who would move into a place and like take out all the bills in different aliases. And then whenever the collection companies came after them to pay their electric bill, they just skip town. I loved it when she said it was easy to disappear in the seventies because nowadays, like what you got your cell phone with you, like everyone knows Jeff Bezos knows where you are. Yeah. Tim Cook knows where you are. Like it's, we're so tracked these days. So to hear about, People like and many people disappear in this book, to me included. Um, it's amazing that that's even possible given the lack of technology. Yeah, don't you wish it was still like that? One hundred percent. I'm one of those people that, granted, I'm enjoying this conversation with you over the internet, utilizing technology right yeah. now. But I'm one of those people that is so grateful that I'm I'm, I'm freshly 37 years old. I had a childhood without the internet, and I'm so grateful for it. And um. I can't imagine otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can't believe you're 37. You look amazing. Thank you very much. It's the diet. <laughs> it probably I'm is, aiming. Though. Well, that's another thing that I, I love to talk to people about. Like, how do, how do you feel about injections and fillers? Are you opposed to them or can you just not afford them? Because I think <laughs> that I'm, I think that I'm pro laser uh, and, you know, laser, microderm, abrasion, that kind of thing. I would also not object to my own fat being put from my ass, being put in my mouth, my lips, um, <laughs> that kind of thing. I don't think I'm a, like a, a botulism to the face type person yeah. yet. yet. But um, I just, I, I think that um, some people, to me included, you look a little crazy when you're in your 50s and you look 30. We, I mean, we've touched upon this. It's not... When you're not aging, like, people's eyebrows start to raise. Oh, I think she looks amazing. Yes, but maybe too too amazing for me. I want, because, you know, rumor at some point may or may not have babies. One one of the kids may have kids, and she's going to be this, like, hot grandma. Yeah. Which I know it's possible, but just, I, I like the keeping it real. I like the Yolanda Hadid, who you can see has aged, but she's just absolutely beautiful. For her age. Yeah. You know what, though, with Demi, I think a lot of it is, like, insane genetics and not drinking. 
Like she had 20 years of sobriety. And I think that makes a huge difference in the way that your skin ages. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Like she just had a glow throughout her entire career. Like even when she was younger, because the really weird thing is you never really see a moment when she looks like you can that like she started to age and then she erased it with surgery. Do you know what I mean? You're right. She's progressed a steady progression. Yeah. There's never been a, oh, she had work done at this moment. Demi clearly had some issues with substance abuse in the beginning of her career and then had like a relapse in the 2000s. But mm-hmm. if that's it, she did good with the upbringing that she had. Oh, yeah. she. I mean, let, let's, let's look at it. No stability whatsoever. Changing schools two to three times a year. Um, her mother who was completely unreliable. Her father was completely unreliable. And we'll get to her relationship with him in a second. I think one of the things that might have helped her was having a brother. Because I think having a sibling, at least she did have a constant up until her teens when they were separated. But um, I and I love her description of her relationship with her brother. She said that her nickname for him was Butthole. <laughs> and her favorite thing to do with him was to fart in her hand and then waft it over his nose. Yeah. That's my kind of that's my kind of big sister. Like I think Yeah. That and I and I that was the first time in the book that she really crassed herself up. Because up until then she was just this like young girl victim that things were happening to and um just always, you know, always going for her father's approval. Yeah. And then she later found out he wasn't her biological father at all, which is heartbreaking. I was gutted. I was gutted. Um, And it was funny because growing up, she was she had all these connection points to him, like Mm -hmm. physical connection points. He had a lazy eye. She had a lazy eye. And she was sure that she inherited it from him. But she was what nine years old. She found her birth certificate, did some very simple math and said, you know, to her mother, you know, is, is he really my father? Um, instead of being cool about it, Jenny, who would throw these emotional bombs at people, mm-hmm. just walked into her father's house and casually said, Demi knows, no family counselor, no sitting down saying like, we love you. He loves you. That was, the, I, I don't know that that was ever said ever again, that her right. father loved her. He basically stopped speaking to her like he stopped treating her like his daughter because I think he was just so emotionally constipated like that he didn't know how to deal with it. Right. And this is not a family secret. Everyone knew but to me. Everyone knew. Young cousins, third uncles, the mailman, the milkman, like everyone knew except for her. And that has to be a life-changing event, not just finding out that your father's not your father, but that you can exist in a world where there's a truth that directly applies to you that you have no knowledge of whatsoever. Yeah. Talk about a mindfuck, man. And then her mom starts bringing her around Roman Polanski. Oh, dinners with Roman Polanski, whom she did. I think she played it very safe here. She mentioned um his problems his troubles um involving him having sex with like 13 year old girls and went to dinners alone with him as a young teen girl yeah no were you so appalled by I mean it's not news to either of us I'm sure but in I guess this was like the late 70s early 80s 
just how much these fully grown men, not even men in their early 20s, men mm-hmm. in their late, late 20s and 30s and even 40s were, you know, either dating or raping teenagers. We're, we're willing to overlook this historically because um, Elvis is still an American icon. Mm-hmm. And people love to love to forget about the fact that he would fly young teen girls across the country, around the world. Um, Priscilla Presley was super, super young. 14. When they got yeah. Um, and we're just we're OK with that because he made great music. Like you every know? rocks. Yeah. Like every rock star we loved in the 70s was like a human trafficker. Yeah, basically. Like David Bowie had sex with a 14-year-old. Yeah. All the Led Zeppelin guys were like the worst ones of all. They were like fully abusive emotionally to these girls. Like they all were doing this shit and it's so insane that it was just taken as normal and and completely run of the mill. I'm saying I'm declaring that it's not okay and I'm not okay with it. But I want to stipulate that a 13, 14 year old in 2019 is an embryo compared to a 14 year old in the 1970s. That's like seen it, has gone through it because, you know, look at like the Olsen twins. When the Olsen twins were 15, 16, I guarantee you that they were more mature, more well-spoken, well-traveled, well-versed than most people in their thirties and forties. So your upbringing has a lot to do with it. Still, there's like brain development that hasn't taken place. There's right. You can't this treating children as adults. I don't care how mature they are. It is just wrong. Yeah. And you know what? We're we're one wave of public awareness away from, you know, one documentary away from um, that would be a great documentary. That would be a great documentary. Uh, Yeah, it would never happen because it would be every single man that was famous in the 70s getting just (laughs) because they all did it and the other thing is like you know they know to to target these that's why I don't buy it whenever men are like she she seemed older because they know to target people like Demi as a teenager who had this hot mess of a mom and no father like Mm -hmm. if Demi was in an intact family with parents who were normal and knew how to discipline her and knew how to set boundaries. No man would even look twice at her because they would instinctually know this isn't going to work out for me and her parents are going to come after me. But, but like with Demi and with all of the groupies in the seventies who hung out on the sunset strip, you know, people considered them like people would say, Oh, it's their fault for hanging out there. And it's like, no, they had like, most of them had no parents or terrible parents. Well, it's very, very sad. But it was clear that Ginny was willing to put Demi in harm's way to her own benefit. And there's one particular incident where this is, could not be more apparent. Yeah. This Demi, was awful. Yeah. What was his name? His name, well, his real name was Basil. Okay. Which is weird, but they, she refers Val. to him as Val Dumas in okay. the book. So they start hanging out with him when Demi's like 14. Basically, even before that, her mom had started, you know, they would get all dolled up and she would drag Demi out to these bars because she knew that guys would look at at them both. Like she was offering up Demi on a silver platter, basically. And then she was kind of bait and switching it and trying to get the guys herself. Mm-hmm. But then I guess it it is a gray area in the book about what actually happened with this guy. But um. 
she this guy Val became sort of like slimed his way into their lives and somehow ended up with a key to the apartment. And one day Demi walks in and he's standing there and he basically raped her. Mm-hmm. And then a few days or weeks later, he said to her, how does it feel to be whored by your mother for five hundred dollars? Not not only that, this happened and then her mother's like, we're moving again because, of course, they were constantly moving, constantly outrunning bill collectors and whatnot. And Val is helping them move. Yeah. Like physically helping them move. So not only did you put, and, and Demi was very clear to say that as a mother, this was the most, it, it, she can't fully admit to herself that her mother would prostitute her out for that money. She can't. And there's no record or mention of it happening again. But you can tell that she believes that it is a very likely possibility that that's what Ginny was doing. And to have to have that horrible experience and then have your mother be like, I think maybe it was Ginny trying to trying to like justify it in her own mind. Like, like, I didn't do that. If I did that, would I invite him to help us move? No. Yeah. That seems like a completely self-serving action. It's so, just so much like manipulation and gaslighting. And he knew that if he said to to me, your mom whored you out, it would make her even more vulnerable to someone like him. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And she that wasn't even the guy that she lost her virginity to. She lost her virginity a little bit earlier to a neighbor who was like 28 or in his mm-hmm. mid-20s. And mm-hmm. she was 14. It's yeah. just like all these old ass men preying on her. And you just have to assume that this was happening left right and center all the time to like every girl back then it's just so fucked up and bravo to her for sharing it now because mm-hmm. i'm sure what america would love to hear is that she was homecoming queen and then she went to college where she got straight a's and she dated a guy like all four years and then after they graduated they slept together and that you know like it didn't happen that way she was used goods she yeah. was used good. She came from a dirt upbringing and the being exposed as such was something that she feared and probably does fear to this moment um, her entire life. She always felt like people were going to find her out because she did have these horrible experiences and these dirty family members. Yeah. My childhood looked like friggin' leave it to beaver. Exactly. Exactly. And I also thought, though, that her parents seemed like they were definitely the life of the party and like extremely fun people to be around Mm -hmm. because she seems like a really fun person to be around. And I think she learned a lot from them and from sort of being treated like an adult from the time she was little. It might have helped her acting career in a way just to know the way to behave and like channel all these different types of people because Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about her acting career is it seems like I don't know if you got the same impression, but it I sort of got the impression that she just kind of stumbled into it and that she liked it, but that she never was like, oh, my God, I'm dying to be an actor like this is my craft. It just seems like she was inherently good at it and Mm -hmm. she's inherently watchable and she just became this gigantic movie star and sort of is like, yeah. 
I think it was the time in her life when she met Nastasia. And say Nastasia had been a little older and she'd been like a real estate person. Demi Moore might be the top real estate person in, you know, all of California by this point. It was she latched on to something yeah. at a time in her life when she was basically free falling and acting was what she latched on to. And it really um, coincided with how much acting she had done as a survival m- method growing mm-hmm. up. Yeah, so it was something that she had been doing anyway. She just needed to, you know, refine her, refine her method, you know, polish it up. And she did take acting lessons, which is where she met her husband, her first husband. Oh, yeah. Freddie Moore. He mm-hmm. was in a band and he yeah. And he was in an acting class and she mm-hmm. was 17 and he was like 30 or something. And mm-hmm. then, you know, they get married. It's like. I, it makes complete sense that she would get married early in life because she did have like no one and it was just like automatic security for her. But something I found interesting is how she admitted that she cheated on him. Um, yeah. in, and then in like, Brazil, even before that, Oh. she was yeah. sort of a mess when she was with him. Cause mm-hmm. that was when she started doing Coke and that was when she started drinking and she immediately became basically a problem drinker. I would say like she ha- she says that she was doing some press for a movie she was in and she was like slumping down in the chair cause she couldn't. Yeah. Even. Oh, the and general then- hospital press. That was her, her first big gig. Oh yeah. She- yeah. And so she, yeah, she was cheating on him and it was interesting that like she never really cheated on Bruce or Ashton as far yeah. as, she said and and she did quaintly fit in she said you know I hooked up with this man with no regard to the fact that he had a wife I'm sorry to admit that I had no regard for his wife in this oh situation. yeah and it was kind of like you asshole you're like you're putting people down for cheating left and right and because you added in a little and this is where I go back and forth with Demi because up until this point I'm feeling so bad for her and everything mm-hmm. that's happened And then, you know, what if Ashton Kutcher had said in his memoir, like, and then sadly, I did not consider my wife when I made my next decision and expected us to just stay along for the ride. This was the first flash for me when I was like, uh, yo, that was messed up. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. But I also was like, okay, she was a child with a terrible home life. Like, it wasn't just hooking up with an older man, it was probably a desperate search for security. Mm -hmm. So I think she, I don't think it, I wouldn't, I don't know. I agree that she sort of slid that in there. And I also found it interesting how she, her big thing about her mom was always talking about her mom was a perpetual victim and always needed to believe that she was the victim. So I'm sure Demi has thought a lot about whether she falls into that same trap. And I'm sure she's done a lot of work to try and make sure that she doesn't. But yeah, there were echoes of that throughout. Like, like when her daughters stopped talking to her and she's like, they didn't even call me on Christmas. And it's like, oh, we'll get to that. Yeah. Like you, they might've needed to not call you on Christmas. Like that was a little bit of victim behavior, which I don't judge her for because her mom was so out of control with that. But she, she definitely does it a little bit too. Absolutely. As we all do. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she so she got the gig on General Hospital. Tons and tons and tons of work. She's got to memorize 30-page scripts, like, per day. She gets them a day or two in advance. I, really like, would work. love to do that. It's my dream 100%. to work on a soap opera. I think it would be so fun. 
I don't even watch soap operas, and I would love to be on a soap opera. Me too. They had um, Eileen Davidson from All My Children and As the World Turns, I think, was on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And I was mesmerized by the lifestyle, the whole yeah. – that's some heavy-duty shit. That's like the boot camp of acting because you're just like morning to night – Every single day while you're filming, no breaks, no nothing. So she was on General Hospital getting some attention. Um, people were liking her. She she got selected to go with the main cast members, and she would just get bombed on set. Because yeah. the main guy that played Luke of Luke and Laura from General Hospital, um, he drank at work. And she's like, well, if he drinks at work, then and he's the big success and everyone loves him, then that must be what's expected of me. And she, you know, found it okay, and she was getting just shit-canned all the time. And she didn't seem to have any, if I'm mistaken if I'm wrong, but I don't think she had any repercussions from that even. Yeah, not really. I think it was working out pretty well for her. It seems, it's really interesting with her, like, whenever she's sober, it seems like she's a completely normal person. And then it's when she's drinking and doing drugs is when she cheats on people and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And I think this was in the beginning of her, like, drinking career, so to speak. Right. So she just sort of, yeah, like nothing was going too off the rails yet, mm-hmm. but it was, it was coming. But then like, along came Rio. She took a break, a brief break from a three month hiatus or so from her work on General Hospital, went to Rio where she made best friends with a girl named uh, Sasa. Zizi or Zize? Zaza, like, yeah, Zizi. And they're friends to this day. So she realized that alcohol was not the best thing for her, that she was a freaking mess. But she's like, but this this cocaine, like this makes me creative and upbeat and happy. And she saw no issue whatsoever with um with doing massive amounts of cocaine. She As, no, ev- everyone thought it was just a miracle drug. I think in the eighties, it was the I Adderall mean, of the eighties. Isn't it a miracle drug? I've never felt hotter in my life. <laughs> <laughs> She said her quote was, I nearly burned a hole through my nostrils while I was in Brazil. She was doing an eighth of an ounce every two days of coke. I can't, I can't. Is that an, is that what you call an eight ball? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not good with it. Yeah, I don't know either, but I was just Sounds like, like a lot to me. <laughs> and she got it from a dentist. Which, and she said that meant it was like really good stuff. Yeah. And then when her, when her dentist connection dried up, who, who gets her cocaine? Her fucking business manager, the person that's supposed to be advising her on how to spend her money. And she's and he's he's like taking her money in exchange for all these drugs. Like what kind of business manager? Is this a long term investment that we just haven't figured out yet? So super messed up. Just another another um, I don't want to say man in her life that let her down. Just another adult in her life that let her down because she was definitely let down by, you know, men and women. Um. But yeah, Rio sounded great. She came back to General Hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then she she says that I think that's when she sort of started going really off the rails. She says she remembers sometimes waking up not knowing where she was, thinking, "Am I supposed to be at work in an hour?" And then she'd have to call someone to drive her to work. Oh. God. Which is like truly only like a 19 year old or 20 year old can do that and still look good. It's so funny to think about like when you were that age and you would be doing like that, le- not that level of par- partying, but close to that level of partying. And you would like wake up and go to work and look amazing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's 
so true because once you get to once you get to thirty, it's like you're wearing the night before yes. on your face. There's no there's no hiding it. Days ago on my face. Yeah, like, there's no there's no quartz or jade roller that's going to roll away the sins of nights past. Like, yeah, it's, it's so funny. But also from this period, I found it interesting. That, like, there was a lot of stuff I wanted to know more about in this book, not in terms of, like, yeah, like, not in terms of juiciness, but just, like, what was it like for her to suddenly have enough money that she had a business manager? Yeah, she really didn't. That was a very, for someone that kind of scraped by growing up with, you know, temporary furniture, temporary housing, not much money to do anything. She really did. But you know what that kind of says to me? She really did gloss over the transition between having no money and having money. But what it says to me was that the money itself was never that important to her. Oh my God. Yeah. It really feels like it doesn't. Acceptance was her currency. Yeah. You could give her a million dollars, $5 million, a thousand dollars to do a job and as long as she felt accepted and welcomed and that she had earned her place, she was happy. Um, the, the financial amounts um, didn't didn't seem to matter to her that much. And later on, we'll see that um, it mattered to other people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she does say that at, she only did one m- movie for money, like her business manager or so, or her agent or someone was like, yeah, this movie isn't going to be that good, but they're offering you X amount, so you should do it. And she said she regretted it and never did it again. So I think you're right. That probably is what it is. Right. And also, like, she started making money so young, I feel like, because she sort of did that high school program where you go to class in the morning and work in the afternoon. So I think she... And her parents always mysteriously did have enough money for stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. even though they were a complete shit show, like, she doesn't seem to have felt deprived in her childhood materially, you know? Mm -hmm. But, like, so I guess she never really felt, even though I think she probably was pretty poor, she never felt, like, dirt poor. And she sort of started making money pretty quickly into her acting career. So, yeah, I guess it was just a gradual thing and she never had like an overnight windfall of cash. Right. And then um Saint Almost Fire kind of comes next. There were a yeah. few between I there. Think that's what she was yeah, she went to um audition for a John Hughes movie and yeah. she didn't get the part. And then she was walking down the hallway and Joel Schumacher had seen her walk by and he sent someone to tap her on the shoulder and be like, wait like Joel wants to see you. So she ended up getting the role in St. Elmo's fire, but Mm -hmm. that's when her drug problem really started to become a liability. Oh yeah. And they like forced her to go into rehab. And one thing I found really interesting was that she like rehab worked for her the first time around. Yeah, absolutely. No recidivism there. It's hard to tell if Jerry Zucker, it's hard to tell if his motivation was out of concern for her or out of concern for his movie, or just like a balance of the two. But they, but um, they basically said like, um, you're going to rehab. And when she got there, they said this is a 30 day program. She's like, I can't do a 30 day program. They said, well, what's more important, this role or your life? And she's like, uh, the role. <laughs> yeah. You know? So they brought the executives from the movie in, and they said, you know, like, listen, when do you need her? Blah blah. blah. They said, if you can accomplish this entire checklist of things within 17 days, then we'll let you go in 17 days. She, being the people pleaser adapter that she was, she achieved everything on the list. 
she showed up for work and she said to his credit, um, the producers, no one ever mentioned it again. Yeah. It was, it was um, they just, I guess, trusted her or hoped for the best. And she delivered, you know, enough so that she was able to meet someone on the set of St. Elmo's Fire. Yeah, Emilio Estevez. It was the wild. Oh. I loved how she said um, when she started dating him and she was sort of embraced into the Sheen family because he's Martin Sheen's son and Charlie Sheen's brother. And she talked about how poetic and sensitive Charlie Sheen was. Uh-huh. He read her poetry. She said she was just blown away by the depth of his feelings. I believe um, it. A hundred percent. I 100% believe it. Like you don't become that level of addict if you don't have some like serious feelings. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you saw it all in Platoon, (laughs) but she had the the adaptability to think like these people are smarter than me. They're classier than me. They are serious actors uh, that perform on camera. And (laughs) this was, you know, it, it seemed really cool, but it didn't seem like Amelia was judging her at all. So her and Amelia got engaged. Mm-hmm. And that, that was like that was like a pretty big deal because they've now been branded as members of the Brat Pack. Yeah, it was like Justin and Selena kind of deal, I yes. feel like. Yes. And she has always said in interviews she hated being branded a member of the Brat Pack. And I remember thinking to myself, like, shut the fuck up. You're a member of, like, the most prominent, happening, popular, um, well-known group of young actors at the time. And now, knowing her background, when she equated Brat Pack with entitlement. Yeah. Spoiled. um, If someone said to a very underprivileged child like you're a fucking spoiled brat I'd be pretty pissed off too I've yeah, seen makes interviews sense. where she addressed it and she's pretty um nice about it you know she's like I don't have a business I don't have a card I'm not a member of this association she's like very chill about it but I can definitely see why it bothered her at the time but this was such a like you know Judd Nelson Ali Sheedy Andrew McCarthy like just Oh, God, to be alive at that time, to go to those parties. Yeah. It must have been insane. It was like like it was like going to a Twin Peaks party or going to a party with, like, the cast of that 70s show. Or I can't even think of what today's would be, what, Riverdale? I guess, yeah. And the fact that they were even making enough of those movies, it just shows how much the industry has changed because you don't see, like, studios grinding out these sort of sm- – like mid-budget movies about people relating to each other and Mm -hmm. relationships and friendships and stuff. It's like so rare now because everything is so like massive budget or it's like Oscar bait. It's never like you don't get any more like just sensitive teen movies that you got back then. Right. So like it's so crazy to watch clips of like about last night, you know, the one that she did with, Um, It wasn't with Emilio. I forget who the guy was, but it was just like a slow, quiet, like romantic teen movie. And Mm -hmm. it's just sort of average and sort of mundane, but it was a huge deal when it came out. And I just miss that kind of movie so much. She did like trailblazing. 
Because in about last night, you know, uh, her character slept with a guy and then was gone the next morning. Mm -hmm. And America was not comfortable with a woman having sex for pleasure and then piecing out to get like a bagel in the morning. You know? Yeah. That was, and she, I think she really relished, and we'll see it more down the line. She really relished in being a trailblazer and representing women in ways they hadn't been represented before, good and bad. Yeah, it's interesting she doesn't really uh, directly address that in the book. It just keeps popping up. And it's like, Mm -hmm. if you're someone who thinks in those terms, you're going to pick it up and be like, wait a minute, she was doing some really radical feminist stuff. But like, she never uses the word feminism. She never talks really about, you know, consciously choosing these roles for that reason. It just seems like it came naturally to her. And those were the roles she was drawn to. And she didn't even really know why. Sometimes I think points are much more poignant when they're tacitly conveyed Mm -hmm. by not overtly saying it. She took us as the, you say reader, I say listener, tomato, tomato, (laughs) and put the idea in our heads. And because we came to that conclusion, we believe it that much more rather than having her tell us that she was doing that or had that intention at all. Right. She she also seems like like she definitely seems outgoing, but she has there's a certain quality about her, especially when you watch interviews. She seems like a woman of few words in a way like she is not really verbalizing her feelings or anything. She's just she it seems like she says as little as possible and not that she's quiet. It's just that she's not really into explaining herself, I guess. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. So next we see the first mention, first real mention of her body issues because she had to be, she was in a movie called One Crazy Summer where she was in a bathing suit pretty much the entire time. Right. So, and she, was this the time when the director told her she had to lose 10 pounds or is that the next movie? Uh, That was, I feel like. It basically, it just starts this cycle of directors being dickheads to her about her weight and saying, you need to lose 10 pounds, you need to gain weight. Then on when she was on Indecent Proposal, uh-huh. like ridiculousness and just crazy because I really think that male directors who did stuff like that, uh, I want to say back in the day, but it definitely has been going on until probably like even five years ago and still like earlier this morning. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I really think it has to just be a control thing because whenever you, I looked, I tried to look for pictures of her in that movie to see if like what her body looked like just for comparison's sake to see if there was any sort of weight gain or loss. And Uh I couldn't find any, but all the pictures you look at her ever, she's always just like so skinny. I think they just do it to be, to be dicks. Right. I, I mean, I want, I believe I'm on your side. I'm in your camp. Um, What I think the director is going for is fuckable and it's through their own lens. Oh yeah. They they look at an actress and they think to themselves, like, I wish she was a little thinner. I wish she had a little more like cushioning around the hips. I wish her breasts were a little bigger. And instead of, you know, realizing that that is a completely insane way to speak to someone They're like, well, I'm a director. I'm basically the god of the universe of this movie. So I will communicate to her that she needs to do A, B, and C with her body. She was on this movie. She was very insecure with her body. Everyone else seemed okay with it. 
Yeah. And she, but she was like, you know, freaking out, which leads to her later on wanting to undershoot her weight just to be extra comfortable because any folds, creases, like something like that would have made her very uncomfortable, especially, especially in like vulnerable positions and sex scenes. Right. And then on Indecent Proposal, he, the director accused her of looking like a man because he thought she was too thin. Remember in like the nineties and two thousands, how fat phobic everything was? No. Let's go back to Titanic. Yeah. The press, like regular newspapers were saying, you know, like even like the New York Times, I don't know if the New York Times did it specifically, but uh, publications as reputable as the New York Times were saying, like, was she too big for that role? You know, right. was Kate Winslet too chunky? And didn't she look chunky next to skinny Leonardo DiCaprio? Like, that was a very okay thing for people to say. Yeah, and for so long. And kind of let it happen. So at the, at the point of Demi's career, we're in the late 80s at this point. It was it was kind of a toss up for what was considered so beautiful, but I think it was still on the curvy ish side. Yeah, still curvier than now for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Or I mean, I mean not now, but curvier than the two thousands. And the thing that bugs me about where we're at, where we are right now, is that there still are tons of actresses and pop stars and everything who are definitely starving themselves and like Mm -hmm. would lose roles if they gained weight, but they're Mm -hmm. all pretending that they're body positive. And it pisses me off so much more than back. Like, like 10 years ago, it was like everyone admitted that they were doing that, but now everyone's just like pretending that it's fine because you're not allowed to really talk about it anymore. We're in this weird middle ground right now. I feel like, like when I was working at a fashion magazine there, we would have models around all the time. And it was like, they were all having a contest for who eats the most pizza and McDonald's, but just like talking about it. And I always just wanted to punch myself in the face. I was like, these girls are, well, for one thing, they're, they're not really lying, but from being around them, what I would observe is, yeah, they would have one slice of pizza and that would be all they eat all day. Mm-hmm. So then they're on Instagram telling all their like followers who look up to them, like I, all I eat is pizza. And it's like, yeah, but like, you're still starving yourself and you know that you are skinnier than everyone else. Like stop pretending that you're relatable, you know? And just cause you see someone with a Starbucks drink with whipped cream and syrup and whatever else don't mean they're drinking it. Oh yeah. There's plenty of people who will carry shit around, go to in and out burger, walk around with a shake shack bag or whatever it is just to put on that whole facade of like, this is just how I am naturally, whatever. So I really appreciate the people that talk about how hard they were. Didn't you find it interesting how Demi, she was exercising so much because of this complex that all these like men in the industry had given her that mm-hmm. her babies weren't growing as the way <gasps> she said. Yeah, she had pregnancy difficulties. And then she had with, um, with her second daughter, Scout, she was breastfeeding her and she was so proud of her, but she was also in the midst of getting in shape for a role. And because she was exercising so much, she was releasing lipase, yeah. which um, degraded the fat in her breast milk. So her daughter wasn't growing at all and breastfeeding this like beautiful, wonderful thing that she really enjoyed doing as a mother because being a good mother was a cornerstone of her, of her um, belief in herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she had, they, the baby had to be given formula and she was devastated. And it, and she says, it was my fault. And in essence, it was her fault. 
Not that she did something with the intention of not having proper breast milk for her daughter, but her extreme exercising and dieting made her an improper source of nutrients for this little baby. But it and it makes sense why she would go to such an extreme because it's like like you said, her main goal in life is to fit in in this Hollywood milieu. And like she's being told you she already feels like she doesn't belong. And she's being told if you gain more than like five pounds, you will not belong. You will not get movies anymore. So it's like, of course, she's going to be so like manic with the exercise, you know? Absolutely. So to me, really took to motherhood. She loved being a mother because it was the first time in her life she had someone that she could really, truly trust. And she even mm. said in an interview, they asked, like, do you trust your husband explicitly? She said, she said, I trust my husband as much as I as as much as I could trust any person in this world except for my daughter, whom I yeah. trust explicitly. I think that's great. But I also sometimes think like it's not great to put that amount of emotional maturity on a baby. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's sort of like very clear that in saying that to me is reliving like the crap that happened in her childhood and how shitty her mom was. But like, it's almost like she's putting too much pressure on her daughter. Who's just a baby and has no idea of that trauma. John Steinbeck, he said it about fathers, but I think it applies here too. He says that 99% of the mistakes that fathers make are as a result of trying to undo or, you know, avoid the mistakes of their fathers. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think we see this here. Um, There's definitely, whereas, you know, Ginny didn't give a shit about Demi. Demi's like, well, I'm going to give like a super shit about my kids, you know? And she really, you're like you said, put so much pressure on them and her relationship with them. When when the baby's a baby, that's kind of fine because you can't over care for a baby as hard yeah. as you try. Like they can take every bit of care consideration they could get, they'll take. Um, I think it's why she had three of them because she wanted like she wanted a team. She wanted mm-hmm. like a crew, a team. I think somewhere in her, she knew that things with Bruce might not work out forever um, because no relationship she's ever had has worked out forever. So this would just be her, you know, learning from experience and and acting appropriately. Um, so I think she saw rumor as like an ally for life through thick and thin. Yeah, it seems that way for sure, which definitely took a bad turn when she was doing drugs in front of her because it's oh. like, I don't care how good your relationship is with your mom or with your daughter. Like, there's no reason to be doing drugs together. Yeah. And Bruce did not take to the scheduling well. Like you said, he figured they never talked about it, but he figured that when Demi became a mother, she was just going to take care of his kid and be there for him before work, after work, maybe like bring a sandwich through during work if he needed it. And she never saw that as an option. She continued to work. And to her credit, she didn't need his permission to do so. She just did it. But what she ended up doing was like, bending over backwards because you know she was I believe he was filming in Canada or she was filming in Canada and she was the one that was traveling multiple times a week to see him and he only came to see them one time yeah there's me and a baby and they're doing all this legwork and he's just you know and I think he liked it that way to be honest yeah I think he was an old school sort of 
like blue collar mindset. And I think this was a really toxic, shitty time for women who did want to work because it was when the myth of having it all started. Oh yeah. Because my mom worked. And like I said, I'm the same age as rumor and my parents both had like full-time jobs throughout my childhood. But this was at a time when we were all pretending that women that it was completely normal and acceptable that women would do all the housework and have a full-time job. And there was no man being asked to step up and help with housework. There was no acknowledgement that this was fucking impossible because being a mom is like a full-time job and having a full-time job is a full-time job. Oh, absolutely. And you can see that with the way it worked out with them because Demi just sort of, and she never complains about that, which again, I'm like, Girl, like, you're allowed to complain about this. Like, the fact that she had to bring her kids onto every single film set and, like, she was never really able to say, oh, the film needs to come to me this time or anything like that, you know? Like, she really, it seems, like, bent over. But she would wake up at 4.30 in the morning to work out and take care of her kids before she was on set. It just seemed like she was... And maybe she didn't find it annoying. Maybe she found it... Maybe she thought it was fine, but I don't know. She was charmed by Bruce Willis's adolescent self-centeredness. Um, when he went out with his friends, he always got a stretch limousine. He did everything so big and, you know, very self-centered. And this was most apparent, I think, right before he went to do a big project. And he said, you know, minor, minor thing to me right before he left. Uh, I'm not sure I want to be married. Yeah, that was Oof. crazy. Ooh, and right before leaving. Yeah. Oh, and, and she it, says she's pretty sure that he cheated on her during that time period on the set of the film. But then they ended up patching it up. Patched it up, made another baby. Um, Scout Willis came into the world. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think they, they had a pretty normal, like, despite that, they had a pretty normal and successful relationship in Hollywood terms. Like oh, absolutely. the fact that they were together for like a decade and they moved their kids to Idaho so they could have a normal upbringing, mm-hmm. I think was really impressive and great of both of them. Oh, those girls owe their parents such a debt of gratitude for not raising them in Hollywood. You're basically, yeah. you're basically fucked up if you grew up in Hollywood. There's no yeah. other way to put it. With rich um, parents, yeah. Yeah, and you're seeing, you know, you're seeing unrealistic expectations of appearance, wealth, behavior, like everything. So yeah. they just grew up with normal people who, and, you know, a testament to the people of Haley, Idaho, didn't give a fuck that yeah. they were famous or anything. This is what I always say when people, when celebrities complain about the paparazzi and when people complain about like being famous is look at Bruce Willis and Demi Moore. They were the A-list it couple of the late 80s and early 90s and they disappeared and they didn't get pop. There were no paparazzi following them when they were in Idaho. Like, exactly. It's, it is possible. Like all you have to do is not be in LA basically. Do you think there's famous, famous people book clubs? Yes. Oh, this is, yeah, there's at the end of, in this book, in the acknowledgements, um, she has for one of the acknowledgements, thank you to my sewing circle. Let me find <laughs> it. it. She has it's a like famous her, club. Probably Julia Roberts. It says the sewing bee, GP, obviously Gwyneth Paltrow, Gwyneth. 
Jenny, which I don't know, maybe Jennifer Meyer, Tobey Maguire's ex-wife, who's friends with every yeah. famous person. Jen, yeah. which I'm thinking is maybe Jen Aniston. Sarah, which she mentioned to Sarah Foster earlier in the book. A David Foster's and, daughter. Yeah. And then yep. she also has Bridge, B-R-I-G. Maybe it's Bridget Moynihan, which would be my dream because I love her because she isn't. She made fun of Tom Brady on Twitter last year. And Dawn. So that's her little famous people book club. And then the next line is Lena D, you are magic, which has to be Lena Dunham. Has to be. So Demi Moore and Lena Dunham are friends. They they drink tea together. Makes yeah. sense. Makes sense. I really found it interesting. There was one line in this book where she was like, oh, basically, um, the thing that's so annoying about the tabloids is they'll get something like 10% right and 90% wrong. So true. It's so true. There's a documentary coming out about National Enquirer. And I think that is going to reiterate that point a great deal that Mm. there is a grain of truth to almost every story you see in there. Right. You know, if they're like, so-and-so is dying, like, okay, maybe they're not dying, but they definitely just had a health scare. So I've been cheating on someone for five years. Okay. Maybe it hasn't been five years. But something's definitely up. They're so spot on. And I think this documentary is going to vindicate the, can you say journalists and National Enquirer is the same thing? Yes, our they, journalists. They do real journalism. such a big they, way. Yeah, they do real journalism. It's like, well, National Enquirer is a really good example of uh, a tabloid that has a lot of like utter fabrication and then a lot of like really good scoops that come from serious reporting. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's interesting how Demi says it because I think that is what pisses off so many celebrities because the thing is you can sue someone if they write something that's untrue, but none of these celebrities ever sue any of the tabloids. So that tells you all, all you need to know right there is 100%. that, like you said, there's a, usually a grain of truth to it. Let's talk about when Demi did the Pregnant Magazine cover. Oh my God, Vanity Fair. Yeah. I remember this so so distinctly it was everywhere every news program every talk show daytime nighttime the whole world stopped and was obsessed with this cover because she okay so she and Annie Leibovitz who you know had a nice relationship together Mm. wanted to do a spread where she was portrayed as a glamorous beautiful sexual pregnant woman and, you know, like she mentions, you have to have sex in order to get pregnant. So it right. is like a, you know, sexual state of being as it is. And as a personal gift to Demi and Bruce, Annie was taking a photo of her with absolutely nothing on. Right. They she had, she had what like, did she call it? A hand bra? A yeah. hand bra? She wrapped her arm around her tits and then held her belly with her other arm. No cooch or anything in the shot. But um, and she said, wouldn't it be amazing if Vanity Fair had the balls to put this on the cover? Turns out they did. And the world flipped. It was so divisive because you had one camp of people that were so supportive of this sexualized, beautiful, in control woman. And the other half of the people who just weren't ready for it, weren't comfortable with it. They said it was obscene. Yeah, absolutely obscene. And at the time, when you got pregnant in Hollywood, you hid. That Mm -hmm. was it. You didn't even show your first bump. 
Not even that little first bump. We didn't see pregnant women whatsoever. This is a totally new thing with exposing your baby baby bump and being out there. And not only was she showing her baby bump, she was freaking huge and she was completely naked. Yeah. So the compromise was they had to sell it in a sleeve so that you could only see the headline that said like, give us more or something like that. Yeah. Fair title. And, you know, sales were huge, but people were pissed. And this is where I think you, for the first time, the country either loved her or hated her. Yeah. This she was when like the thing up until this point upset people. She was just half of America's sweethearts. Yeah. The backlash started because she says how, um, the, the story that went along with the cover basically accused her of being a huge diva. Huge. They said, and, Oh, that must be so hard. Cause she achieved so much with the cover and yeah. then the text, the copy inside set her back in ways that she never came back from. And it sort of, it lent credence to the critics who were saying, oh, she's she just wants attention. She's just an exhibitionist. And then the whole article is that she's selfish, egotistical, pampered, and that she, you know, it just was, it was awful. But and the editor at that time was Tina Brown, who was like, is like one of the great magazine editors of all time. And it's sad that, that the article had said that. I don't know. That, it makes me sad. going to sell, I guess. Yeah. And so they said, I'll just read what it, what um, the article said. It said that she says there were anonymous quotes claiming that I had gotten ghost because I'd marry, married well oh. and said that being Mrs. Bruce Willis had gone to my head swelling it unmercifully there were complaints about the entourage factor assertions that i was catered to on the set of the butcher's wife where the interview had transpired i was a prima donna surrounded by sycophants among whom was rumors nanny i was still nursing you try shooting a movie without help while you're breastfeeding i wanted to scream so they're giving her shit for having a nanny Isn't however however just just step into this alternate universe with me what if it's all true what if she did have a huge swollen head? What if she was super demanding? What if she was super self-centered? We don't have anyone else's perspective on this period of time. So not that I feel that way, but I definitely questioned it. Well, Maybe here's, she was a lunatic at this point in time. Well, the thing is, like, no one would have said the same thing about Bruce Willis, even though we have proof that he behaved in a very similar way. Right, like, right, right. and this is what makes like diva accusations are usually so sexist. Like mm -hmm. it's because she is a successful woman who, especially a successful woman who came from like a poor working class background. Very poor. The fact that she like, yeah, she probably did get her head swollen a little bit. Who wouldn't literally who wouldn't, you know? And like, I think everyone goes through those periods where you kind of get a little bit big for your britches and you need to get knocked back a little bit. But when it happens to women is the only time that it becomes like a national news story. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I get, I have a swelled head just because I think my husband's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> like if I see someone looking at him, I just, I like, I just feel it and I'll make a beeline to him. And it's as though he's like my accomplishment. Like I grew him somewhere. <laughs> like, <I'm laughs> so That's so funny. I love that. So, um, so, okay. We're, we're at least, we're saying that most likely this is a sexist shadow cast over her, but there's a chance that some, there's a, there's a grain of truth. 
And it's yeah. like she said, what if they got 10% of it right and 90% of it is total bullshit? Well, here's the thing. Like, with Bruce Willis, we take his diva behavior as being a lovable scamp, you Charming. know? We're Charming. We're like, oh, how oh, nice. He, he works for his money and now he takes a stretch limo everywhere. Whereas yeah. when it when a woman does it, it's like, oh, how dare she, like, enjoy yeah. herself? How dare she enjoy her money? How dare she have a nanny help her raise her kids while she makes more money? Mm-hmm. I do like, think I do think an aspect of being as famous as Bruce and Demi are um, there is, you've got to be a little crazy. No yeah. sane, sane, normal person seeks to be one of the most recognized people on the planet. Like that, right. that takes a little extra something. Um, I think, you know, I think it's the 10% truth, 90% fabrication in this case. Yeah, I think I would probably be accused of being difficult if I was in her position at any point also. Shit, I am difficult. I refuse to work unless I have LaCroix in the fridge at work. <laughs> right. It's like these are the things that like everyone has certain conditions that they want at work. And it's only women who are accused of being difficult when they like insist on those conditions, you know. Uh-huh. Same same thing with female singers. Everything. Uh, it always has been that way. Also, and- like, why was no one saying how about why doesn't Bruce raise her kid while she's on set? That's unheard of. Like if a you father want, watching children? Right. Like, they don't want her to have a nanny. Why don't they say, where's Bruce? Right. No. And no one said that. But she did say, she has, and she has said repeatedly throughout this book that he was always overjoyed when he found out she was pregnant. Oh, yeah. And he was just such a sweet, doting father. She said the, the whole nine months she was pregnant with Rumor, he told her she was absolutely gorgeous every single day. And that just... Oh, it, it makes me so ha- it makes me really happy to know that he does have that um, husbandly mater- uh, paternal sweet yeah. energy about him. It and just doesn't def- last forever. Yeah. And he definitely loved her a lot because he married a woman who looks like a younger version of her. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen her? No. Oh, my she, God. In some pictures, you can't really tell if it's her or Demi. Oh, my God. She I, has, like, really similar coloring. She's a little tanner. Okay, I'm um, pulling her up right now. And Demi makes the point in the book that... Oh, she, yes. Well, well, you know, the first picture that comes up, they look... Ex- they're right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is... She has a Moorish quality to her. Yeah, and she is 25 years younger than Bruce, and no one gives a single shit, whereas... Ashton was 15 years younger than Demi, and it was like the world stopped. Oh, absolutely. Like, the biggest deal ever. Wow. I wish that there was a little more dirt about Bruce. I think they're still friends, and mm-hmm. that's why there's not dirt about him in there. But I right. was like, I love him. I will always love him. There's something about him that I just, like, love. Right. Um, but I'm sure there have to have been some dickish moments that didn't make it. Something that didn't show up in the book that I kind of learned from watching old interviews from that time is Striptease and G.I. Uh-huh. Jane. These are the two movies that I actually remember from my childhood because uh-huh. there was such a huge PR push around Striptease and G.I. Jane. They didn't. I didn't realize they were both like box office flops. Yeah. Which yeah, is insane so, because they were spoken about constantly. Yeah, they were so buzzy. But, like, I remember when I was little, I because of striptease, I asked my mom what a stripper was. 
And she said, she was like, go ask your father. (laughs) So I was like, like, daddy, what's a stripper? And he was like, it's a chemical you use to get paint off. (laughs) Well, Demi was a different kind of stripper. And she said she related to the film because the main character was working to get her daughter back. And she could relate to a mother who would do anything for her children, similarly to in G.I. Jane. Yeah. And it's crazy when you watch the interviews from that time period, how she had to do a lot of apologetic bullshit language (sighs) around the whole concept of being a stripper because people were so appalled that she would take this role. And this was the role that she made $12 million on and when Barbara Walters is interviewing her about it, she's like, didn't a lot, don't you think like, you know, a lot of people are saying that you only got paid this much because you agreed to strip. And it's just so shitty that people were saying this shit about her. And she had to say, she had to basically be like, yeah, you know, like I'm so grateful that I'm being paid. It's so amazing. And she couldn't even bring up equal pay whatsoever. She couldn't bring up the fact that plenty of men were getting paid that much. And Mm -hmm. She had to basically apologize for it. It's such right. a bummer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, you know, clearly had a studio press person with her letting her know what she could and couldn't say. Because a lot of what was coming out of her mouth was a watered down version of how she really felt. Yeah. And I it's. Mean, yeah. Yeah. It just shows like in the culture at that time, like it people still like severely looked down upon women who were sexual in public. Mhm, mhm. Or behind had, like, like a, a or behind a velvet curtain. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. Know? And it it just sort of like cast this. It put this stigma on her accomplishment that really just sucks. I think most people, and I think most people would agree that in ter- from like a you know outsider perspective, her body in striptease was iconic. It's like yeah. one of the most amazing bodies ever. And then for GI Jane, you know, she's not the tallest. She said she beefed up to like 138 pounds and that was just pure muscle. And yeah. she made a specific remark that Bruce did not enjoy it. Yeah, that was weird. Like, why did he need to say that he didn't enjoy it? Yeah, let her know. Probably like lack of intimacy or something is how she got to that point. But like, let's fast forward mm-hmm. to Ashton. He sort of pole vaulted to a new level of fame by dating her because. Anyone our age knew who he was because of, like, dude, where's my car and, like, dumb shit like that. And then when he started dating her is when he really, really started to make it. And then I think he decided that he wanted to sow his wild oats, and he obviously did. In all honesty, I thought we were being punked. Really? I'm just being honest. Like, now I look back and I'm like, what an asshole for me to even think that. But I really thought that it was a joke partially because it really came out of nowhere. Yeah. They, you know, it wasn't like they were spotted together. There was none of that. It was just, oh, you know, you know, Demi, you know, uh, Ashton Kutcher? Yeah, he's everywhere. And like, you know, Demi Moore? Like, no, I haven't seen her in a hundred years. Because keep in mind, she's living in Haley, Idaho. Yeah. She's not, she's not in the scene. She's not making appearances. This, the first comeback she had was this. And I, whenever I hear about a celebrity relationship, my first thought is, well, is it real? Yeah. And, you know, more, I would say, what would you say? I, I'd say like, it's probably 
50-50 real to fake. That's my understanding. Well, I think that it's it's like there's shades of gray with it because I think a lot of the time the celebrities who do get together don't even realize that their publicists have arranged it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I totally just, see that happening. Yeah, like they'll just be like, oh, so-and-so wants to hang out with you. Do you want to go out with them? And they'll be like, okay, and then they start a relationship. So it's like it was orchest- orchestrated by those two people's publicists and it might be real, but I think it's also – a lot of the time it's not necessarily fake with a contract, but it's like both people involved know that it's mutually beneficial for their careers. And so they play it up a little bit, even if they don't like each other. Like, I don't know if, like, I think a lot of the time they don't talk about the fact that it's fake, but they're both just sort of pretending that they like the person. Uh, Sean Mendez, Camilla Cabello, if you're listening, you're not fooling anybody. We all know that you're full of shit. You're <laughs> terrible actors and no one wants to see it anymore. That is from the first time I saw them together. The I crazy was like, that looks fake. Yeah, the crazy thing with that one is just the fact that people are buying it. People are fully buying it. Like that's why you see so much press coverage of it, of it because people care and people are clicking on it and I'm like, "Oh my god." But if you, but next time you see a picture of them, if you look at the comments, it is, um, it's a mixed bag of, oh, you guys are couples goals to like, you guys are fake as shit. And you know, it's annoying. Sometimes Um, I wish I had the mindset of the people who take every single celebrity story at face value. Like, oh my God, what what a a sweet world to live in. Right. What a sweet, innocent way to go through life, you know? So Demi and Ashton are together. Their best friends are so close. She felt like when she was with Bruce Willis, she gave him too much space and was too, you know, like flippant about things. He would say, can I, you know, can I do this movie? She's like, yeah, sure. He'd say, can I go out with my friend? She says, yeah, sure. He goes, can I go on vacation with my friends for a week? Absolutely. And he felt like she didn't need him enough. Right. So then with Ashton, she tried to, you know, overcompensate. She she becomes completely codependent. Completely to the point where, you know, her number one function in life she felt was being a mother. She admits to letting that slip. Because I think the other important thing to remember is like she was relapsing on drugs and alcohol and not that it was Ashton's fault whatsoever. It was all her, you know, obviously. But she kind of blames him. She, she, yeah, because, because I do get it. Like she's so obsessed with him. She's been sober for 20 years mm-hmm. and she feels like she hasn't dealt with this demon in a really long time. And then one night they're on vacation and Ashton is drinking wine and he says, and knowing that she's in recovery, he says, I don't know if alcoholism is a real thing. I think it's all about moderation. Yep. And I mean, uh, like so many people in their twenties have said that like boneheads because they don't actually know. And like, you know, Demi even admits, she says, I didn't think this is a kid in his 20s who has no idea what he's talking about. I didn't think I have nearly two decades of sobriety under my belt. And that's a huge accomplishment. Instead, I cast about for justifications of his argument. Plenty of people party too much in their youth and develop a relationship with alcohol that's healthy later. I use like she goes through all of this stuff. And I understand why she sort of gradually got back into drugs and alcohol. But I do think she also underplays how much of a like relapse that she had, because I think that was the main reason why her kids didn't want to talk to her. But she's also undercutting one of her main points because, you know, she's like, 
I'm 40 and he's 25. What's the big deal? There's no big deal. And then when it comes to an actual life thing, she just there identified him as a dumb kid. Yeah. So one like, she's like, we're we're two souls that love each other. And then she's like, you're a fucking child. I think so she's saying that. To me? Yeah. I think she's saying it that in retrospect. Yeah. Like, right. I think at the time she was like, we are of the same level of maturity. This is fine. And now looking back, she's realizing, like, why the hell did I listen to a 25-year-old's perspective on substance abuse? Like, right. 25-year-olds are notoriously <laughs> not the people who have a good oh grip God. on substances, you know? Yeah, don't get me started on age differences in relationships. There are some that work flawlessly, beautifully, and they are clearly two souls that were meant to be together. And then there's other ones where just, No. The fact that she had the threesomes, she yeah. she said that sort of what led to their down, what kind of was either led to or was symptomatic of the beginning of the end of their marriage is that Ashton sort of persuaded Demi, or she, and she was into it too. Yeah, he to have expressed two, his interest in a threesome. Yeah, to have two threesomes. I couldn't help but notice that she spent a lot of time in the book saying that the women involved in the threesomes were very nice yep. and one of them has a child now and yep. I was like oh what kind of damage control before the fact are you doing right now like you did not have to mention the women in the threesomes whatsoever you could have just said we had two threesomes like that was really interesting to me I felt like there was an element of maybe like light intimidation by 100%. her percent just saying by the way, to you two ladies, like, I've kept tabs on you. Kind Listen, of the way I said it, you're a friend. The way you're going to say it, you're a whore. Take your choice. Right. Yeah, that's definitely what it was. And I was like, ooh, that was like a little, that was like smart and also like calculated. But that's what I'm talking about. When we, okay, so we're getting to a point where her relationships are starting to break down. And when you are listening to her tell the story, these things are happening to her Or she conveniently blames them on her upbringing time and time again. So she clearly at some point was the kind of person that people didn't want to be around. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is just illustrating that. Well, she she was taking 12 Vicodins a day. Yes. And probably lying about it. Yeah. And that's the part where I think her daughters started to pull away and that's, I think she glossed over the 12 Vicodin. 12? I've never taken 12 of anything in a day. No, no. Like Advil even. 12 Advil a day I would OD, you know? I've never even taken 12 compliments in a day. Like this is is serious. (laughs) This is serious stuff. Yeah, Uh, like, and she must have been doing the most bonkers shit. And like, and also this was after she had a miscarriage when she was six months pregnant. Oh my gosh. That was probably the biggest bombshell to come out of this book. And the photo at the end, when you see how big she was. I saw the photo on the internet. I didn't see it in the audiobook. But yes, un-freaking-believable. So sad. So then, so after, so she, oh God, that was so sad. I I was weeping. I was listening to it. I was on my Peloton bike doing a scenic ride through the mountains of Oregon, just (laughs) weeping. Um, my husband came in. He's like, are you okay? And I was like, to me, just lost a baby. I was so upset. And I think that that had to have been such a major crack in their relationship because at the age of 25, a guy, she's a mother. And the other thing is like, this was not her first pregnancy. 
Right. She felt a much deeper loss than Ashton did, and that's okay. Yeah. Because to him, they lost a pregnancy. To her, they lost a baby. That's just my take on it. Yeah. But they, but they agreed they wanted to have kids, so they pursue um, uh, in vitro fertilization. And because she didn't want to burden her daughters with all the information, like, this is my basal temperature. This is how I'm ovulating. This is my uterine lining. This is all this stuff. So instead of telling them what was going on, she kept it a secret, which really drove a wedge in between their relationship. Can you mm. imagine if you had something that you thought about 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it threw your hormones into a mess and you weren't telling your children, your, yeah. your grown adult children? That's just so – that's I, not devious at all because she, I think she did it with really good intentions, but it backfired because yeah. now – her, her daughter's, how could you trust someone that, that is keeping something like that from you? It's just turned into such a perfect storm of uh, reasons why she was isolating herself from her kids one by one and like yeah. slowly like pulling away. And I just, I just can't. Yeah. I feel like it's completely understandable that like she started this slow drinking relapse and then like with the pregnancy and with all the failed IVF attempts and with all of that stuff, it makes complete sense that it slowly, slowly progressed to an insane Vicodin addiction. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Then, um, then Ashton cheated on her once and she's like, Jesus Christ, you know? And I think she was willing to like overlook the one time he said that because we had threesomes, it was like confusing for me. Then fast forward. Which is such her- bullshit. Oh, such, such bullshit. Bu- such How bullshit. could he say that with a straight face? Like, But he, but he did. He, because that was a Kelso had- move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Kelso. like – it is like a Kelso move. It's like a huge dumbass. Like I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so stupid that mm-hmm. I thought a threesome meant I could cheat on you on a bachelor weekend. Like, right. and she believed. I mean, I don't blame her at all for believing him. Oh no, that was no, when, that was the first time he cheated on her. Yeah. Then he wrote her. Then you know, like however long months years later, he writes her this sweet letter about how he's the luckiest guy in the entire world and how amazing she is, incredible. And he says, I have Danny Masterson's bachelor party. Can I go? And she's like, yeah, sure. So she's in New York about to do this huge presentation for a film project that she's producing and directing. And she gets a Google alert across her phone. Ashton Kutcher caught cheating on Demi Moore. And she's like, her first reaction is, I hope this is the first cheating incident being regurgitated because there's new details, right? right? And she quickly finds out. No, it is not only did he cheat on her in San Diego at Danny Masterson's bachelor party, but the girl he cheated with is giving a detailed play-by-play. And in reading the girl's story, she doesn't need any further evidence, doesn't need any further support. It is clearly he's guilty. And he didn't deny it. She called them and she said, how the fuck could you do this to me? You know, and he admitted it and he owned it. Somehow, by the grace of God, no one asked her about it that night. But, oh, my gosh, to go through a line of press Mm -hmm. and people must have known they knew they people absolutely there knew if she got a Google alert, it was common knowledge. They're at an event that she's appearing at cell phones like, come on, everyone knew. And um, I probably because it was a women oriented event with women directors and women performers. That's why people chose to not ask her about it. But had it been like a normal film premiere or something, I think they would have been a little more ballsy. Oh, you're so, so right. Yeah. So then we find ourselves, um, her and Ashton separated. 
Yeah. And I think it's also something that she doesn't mention is like, you know, for me, it's like he he got caught by Google. <laughs> like <laughs> He was exposed by Google alerts twice, yep. which means that both of these times that he cheated, it made it to the press, which is wild. I mean, so how, how many times many... did he really cheat? Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's so rare for a, even with a celebrity, I feel like it's rare for their affair to make it to the press in real time, like right. that quickly after it happens. It's never that quick. So yeah. he must have been all over town, like just not giving a shit. Yeah. And she even said he wanted to get caught on some level. Yeah. And he's and he's not cheating with like sophisticated, smart people that are in the business that are demure and, you know, quiet about things he's cheating with like 21 year old bimbos who are so excited to be like guess who is? i had sex with a married man does anyone want to hear me talk about it like that's yeah that's low that's just fucking low you're you might as well have a sex doll at that point Those yeah suck. they suck speaking of oh. okay sex doll how weird is her obsession with buying toys that i found i i conflated that with you know how like, and I'm not, I really, I'm not getting into like the sex abuse aspect of him, but how Michael Jackson didn't have a childhood. So as mm-hmm. an adult, it seems like he tried to make up for that childhood and he almost like froze himself at like nine or 10 years old. Um, I feel like Demi's obsession with toys was one, fulfilling the childhood experiences she never had. And two, um, completely overdoing it as a parent yeah. because she wanted to show her daughters like I love you and this was the collateral this was the currency that she used um, but yeah, yeah. She, she and and at first you're like okay we got it you bought toys but she was very clear that it became um, an obsession like to yeah. a crazy extent so I'd imagine she spent like tons of money on it tons of time and their house was probably creepily toy oriented around that era yeah I think I think there was also an element of hoarding with it where she was just so nervous that she was gonna lose her house that it's like if just because of how many times she moved as a kid it's like let me fill this with as many dolls as I possibly can because of whatever reason that people hoard. And there was this, in one of the interviews I watched on YouTube, they, I guess at the time, they didn't realize that she had sort of an addiction to buying toys and dolls. Uh But it was during the time that she was married to Bruce Willis, she she participated in this big like doll auction. And she just looks so like weirdly happy to be surrounded by all these dolls. I was like, oh girl, like some. Yeah, like it's it's such a harmless addiction. It's like it's like a funny like harmless thing, but it is just like wow, we have we've all got our we've all got our stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ashton leaves her and no one's talking to her. No yeah. one. She didn't she did maintain an Ash, a relationship with Ashton through their organization to protect girls from sex trafficking. Oh, I loved um, that detail that But I think right it took after- a while for them to come back together. Yeah. And like right after she found out he cheated, they had to stand on stage and she had to stand there and say, there are men in the world who are abusing and like all this stuff to girls knowing that he had just like cheated on her and lied about it. Yeah. Um, And three years for your three daughters to not talk to you for three years. I can understand Bruce Willis not getting involved. I can. 
Because oh, see, I was gonna say I disagree. Yeah, that's fine. Explain what your perspective is. Um, my perspective is that once you've had a member of your family demonstrate that they can excommunicate people, um, you will do anything to avoid being excommunicated. And I think when Bruce Willis knows they have these three daughters and these three daughters, they have the money, they have the means, they have the connections to be completely and totally autonomous. Whereas other, you know, 18, 22, whatever year olds don't have that. They rely on their parents for one reason or another. Um, And I think that these girls, they don't rely on them financially. They don't rely on them emotionally because, you know, their dad, he's got a fresh new wife. He's probably like busy with her. Demi has her substance abuse problems and her hot young husband. So they've probably evolved to like support each other emotionally. And if Bruce got involved and he like maybe insisted, like you need to talk to your mother, maybe they would just cut him out too. And he figured it's better to keep them with one parent than to have them not talking to both parents. I agree with you there completely. What I was thinking is that Bruce should have helped her a little more. Yeah, especially yeah, yeah. he really wasn't. It didn't seem like he was a big uh, source of support. But he was re- he was newly married. I Does know. his new wife deserve to have his ex-wife be so demanding with his time and energy and all that? I think it was just yeah. Like I wouldn't expect him to pack up and go to her and like tend to her. Right. But I just it just seemed like he wasn't doing anything, and I felt like as a co-parent when she was so clearly flailing and like when they, their entire life together had been like sober and he could probably clearly see that she was not doing well and that she was back on drugs and drinking. And after the marriage ended with Ashton, like, I don't know. I just wish that he had like helped her a little bit more as a friend, you know, like not that it's his job. It's just that it would have been nice. Yeah, I could see that. I totally, I totally see where you're at. Um, and that could definitely be a possibility. I and just, I think at times she felt to me like a huge fucking energy suck. Yeah, like, that's probably if you, true. If you like, maybe you don't even want to be in her realm for three years at a time, let's say, because anything, and you know who else was a huge fucking energy suck? Her mother, Jin oh, yeah. King. So in her efforts to not become her mother, she kind of became her mother because Uh with her daughters, like, you know, there was always something going on with Demi, whether it's her outrageous relationship, her substance abuse problems, her, her, and you know, like when Ashton cheated on her, um, she said she didn't have like a big open discussion with her daughters. So she probably acted out in other ways. Yeah. You know, and they only those girls know only those girls know how they felt and how they depicted it. But I just at this point in the book, I'm like, wait a second. Like everything keeps happening to you. Like you're just this floating flower. Everything keeps happening to you. You clearly want people to feel bad for you. And that is reminiscent of her mother. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're all products of our parents. We all turn into our moms at some point. (laughs) absolutely absolutely and that was her moment I think yeah like I think she just you know she had some work she needed to do to make sure that she wasn't going to turn into her mother and the Ashton relationship fast-tracked her into turning into her mother and it seems like now she's found a better balance yes I I certainly hope so I want nothing but good things for Demi Moore 
I do think she's, regardless of any um, speculation I might have, I think she's an amazing person. I think she's mm-hmm. inspirational. I am so glad to have heard her whole story from her side. And I would encourage anyone and everyone to pick up this book. It is really well done. Really, really well done. It's do you think so she good. had some help in writing? She had a ghostwriter, yeah. Well, oh, she And she said the person's name. I can't remember what their name is, but it's Ariel Levy, I think is her name. Oh. And she had a memoir that was very similar, that was even laid out very similarly. Um, and I want to read it now because yeah. it, this book was, was great. Some people think Diva's a bitch. Who's a diva to you? Would you say, are you one? Oh. I never said that. Diva behavior. Hey, great, uh, great gowns, beautiful gowns. Diva Behavior, the podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 